afternoon. It's high noon, Friday, the 27th of March, 2020, from the bunker in beautiful Bayside, downtown Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. And this is the first, El Primero, Numero Uno, Number One, The Way It Is Bobby Galinsky Podcast. I am Bobby Galinsky. Welcome and thank you all for listening around the world. We're going to be doing this every Friday at noon until the world ends, which, of course, could be maybe two more podcasts, the way things are going. But um, we're going to have a lot of fun. This is a approximately 40-odd minute podcast, as I said, weekly, and I will be covering movies, entertainment, history, some sports, religion, sex, drugs, rock and roll, cultural media, politics, the left, the right, what's happening, Antifa, and beautiful, beautiful coal. We're going to be covering it all with heavy, heavy lean on the entertainment industry. And the reason it's going to lean heavy on the entertainment industry is it's something I know quite a bit about. It's something I've loved since I was a little kid. And I believe a lot of the way we are today, the clothes we wear, the way we talk, the fragrance we might wear, the way we walk, how we are, is evocative of heroes and heroines that we saw when we were young kids on TV or at the movies that influenced the way we are today as much as our parents may have influenced us in many ways. And because Hollywood and television play such a big, big part in our lives. But Hollywood isn't everything. TV isn't everything. It is a big influence. So we'll also be covering just about everything else on the planet. But I guess a bit of an introduction for those of you that might not know me or only know me from different worlds, so to speak. I'm 66 years old, as I shared, born in 1953 in the middle of America in Iowa, which uh, if you lay the map of the U.S. over the map of Australia, where I've lived since 1994, where Iowa is, is where nothing is in Australia. It'd be where Alice Springs is out in the desert. But Iowa's a lovely little farm area, mostly uh, agricultural And my family had been there for many, many years. My dad had taken over a company that had started way back in 1871, which was a steel and metallurgical firm and foundry, which uh, my older brother continues on to this day. And Iowa is best known for people that don't live in Iowa for two things. It's known for the place where that giant DC-10 crashed in July of 1989 and killed about a a third of the passengers, which is quite amazing that even two-thirds of the passengers live. That's DC-10, flight 232. And also, Iowa is known internationally for the wonderful movie, also a 1989 event. 1989 was a big year for Iowa. Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner. If you build it, they will come. And this podcast has been built so that you will come and listen to me over and over and over. No! even if you don't agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, that's okay. Because all my philosophy is is to try and get people to talk and try and get people to think, because most people would rather do anything than think. In 1971, I moved from Iowa to the University of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado. My folks piled me in the station wagon, and we drove all the way around the country looking at the schools that I'd been accepted to, because I was a pretty smart little boy, little fat Jewish boy with big nose and thick glasses and absolutely no social skills whatsoever. So he had to take me someplace where I could 
get a bit of a life in an education. And we went out to California and looked at USC and UCLA. And I'll never forget coming out there and seeing like 100,000 students and, you know, 30,000 students. And I was from a town of about 60,000. So that totally freaked me out. And I was from a town of largely just, you know, waspy people and Jewish community on top. And uh, I saw a lot of people I'd never seen before, except in strange documentaries. And then went out to Arizona, and Arizona was too hot. And then the last school that I'd been accepted at, as I'd mentioned before, University of Colorado, we uh, had driven there from Arizona, and uh, it was pretty much the end of the journey there. And we come over the hill from Denver, and then down in the valley, Boulder Valley, and it's very, very hazy. Now, this was in July of 1971, the summer. Why is it so hazy? What's going on there? It was like a, a cloud over the whole town, except it wasn't clouds. It was tear gas, as it was the height of the Vietnam War, and people were absolutely going apeshit with Vietnam War demonstrations, girls running through the streets, topless, tear gas, National Guard going crazy, absolute insanity. This was more sensory overload than I had ever had in my life. I was thinking, I want to go to this school. This is exactly where I want to go. And of course, my dad being the most right-wing nutjob conservative Republican for life ever would say, you're not going to go to some kind of communist anti-war school like this. But my mother and in her infinite wisdom being a wonderful mother goes, well, bud, it's the closest to Sioux City, so he'd be able to visit more often. And my mother, like all mothers, always gets her way. And so I enrolled at University of Colorado. Plus, I had a couple of friends from my high school that were there, so I would know a couple of people there. It was still a big campus. It was almost 30,000 students, which was like half the size of the town I grew up in. So it did freak me out a bit. I had grown up a very sheltered life, a very chubby, Jewish, big nose, thick glasses, boy in Iowa, and my parents were very protective of, of me. Uh, their first child, uh, Stevie, died of leukemia when he was eight, and so I was the substitute. I already had an, an older brother who was ostensibly the middle child, but now the older brother, Andy, who had taken over the family business after I'd uh, left my father's business, and um, I was the substitute. I was the replacement, so I was always the favorite. I was Molly coddled covered in cotton wool, and my mom always wanted to make sure that everything was cool so she wouldn't lose a second kid. And uh, I went to Sioux City Central High School. I'll be mentioning a lot of my friends from there over the course of the months and years on this podcast uh, because I'm still friends with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those kids. They're not kids anymore. They're my age. But uh, we had a school of 1,500 students. It was the Castle on the Hill, this giant mega stone granite castle called the Castle on the Hill. And we had over 600 in our graduating class, of, of which like 90 are dead now. Not a good longevity rate um, for Midwesterners. But uh, thanks to the magic of social media, still friends with um, many of those people. And I was on the yearbook as photographer, one of a couple of photographers. The others were absolutely rubbish. I was the only good photographer. And one of the contributing editors, too, although I didn't get enough credence for that. But that's where my love of journalism and the written word 
really captured me. I, in fact, I had a teacher named Brad Petens. I don't even know if he's alive anymore that sp- taught English at uh, Central. Always told me, if you master the word Galinsky, you will master your universe. I will never, ever forget those words. I hope he's alive somewhere. Um, but he'd probably be about 100, and I doubt he's listening to this podcast. Um, from there... From there, I, I go through the story, this little soliloquy here, because the more you know about me and my, my past, the more the conversations that we have, whether we're talking about left-handed people, whether we're talking about left-leaning people, whether we're talking about property disputes or politics or climate change or anything else, you see the way I was formed, the way I was molded is really what brought me to where I am today. So going from Sioux City to Boulder, Colorado was absolutely immense. Now, I was a very smart kid. Yes, it's true. And I had very good grades in high school. Yes, it's true. But, however, being let off the leash at University of Colorado didn't prove fortuitous for a four-year degree. took me a few more than four years. In fact, uh, many more than four years, and I left without my degree there because there were much more important things, such as quaaludes and cocaine, to focus on. So while I did major in journalism with mass communications as a minor, it was probably the partying and the diversions, the hobbies, that uh, the recreational etouan that probably steered me away from the books a bit too much. So if you picture this in 1971, someone having this much fun for the first time, skiing, sport, uh, in fact, some of the best ski areas in the world, just, you know, less than uh, two hours away from the campus. Everything you could possibly want, all this kind of fun. It just wasn't very conducive for studying. And nor was it very conducive for someone who'd never been out of a small town to be in uh, a university that was just absolutely awash with very cosmopolitan, metropolitan people with tremendous social skills. So I was absolutely lost, absolutely lost. So, um... I majored in partying, which um, actually worked out quite well for me on my own for a little bit, and uh, then moved out to California to follow the dream into the entertainment industry. My dream, which as a young child, was to win an Academy Award for something. I remember being a very young child in in Iowa, and I would have uh, one of those chocolate Easter bunnies, which in a Jewish household may sound a bit bizarre. But um, it was a bit non-denominational about that. I would have a chocolate Easter bunny, and when the Academy Awards were on TV, uh, my mom and dad would be sitting around with my brother, and we'd be watching the Academy Awards, and I would practice holding up my bunny just like an Oscar and then accepting an award for something. Now, what that something would be was a bit indeterminate. Uh, By the time I got to high school, I realized it wasn't going to be best actor because every time I looked in the mirror, I did not look like anyone that was winning best actor Oscars or even best supporting actor. But I did have a penchant for film. My father had given me a eight millimeter, not a super eight, eight millimeter camera to play around with, which then became a super eight millimeter camera. Then by the time of my bar mitzvah, uh, a Jewish um, midterm rush when you're 13 years old and you technically become a man, although I was far from it as possible. I was making movies with my friends all around Sioux City. And then I realized, oh, maybe I could be a great director or or writer. 
and uh, that that continued on all the way out till I moved out to California in 1977, where I then decided I am going to win an Academy Award for Best Screenplay or Best Adapted Screenplay at some point. Maybe director, but by then I'd kind of lost my director's dream. It all looked a bit too hard, and writing was my was my forte. I knew I had a way with words. I never forgot those words from my teacher that mastering English would be mastering your universe. And for me, it was a way to control things. I could control my thoughts, my wishes, my dreams, my fears, put them down on paper, and they would be so real. I used to go to the movies all the time as a kid. My mom would take me to this little cinema called the Uptown Cinema, um, just about five minutes from our house, and I would watch like a double feature with um, my friends, you know, like horror films, all the Hammer films of the 50s and early 60s, and films were my life. So to be a part of that seemed seemed to be a natural and for a way to make my dreams become reality. Plus, I also thought then if I was famous and won the Academy Award, I would also get my drugs for free and I would get laid, which was um, something that was very important to me by that point. It was there in Beverly Hills that I bounced around with a couple of ad agencies and then eventually ended up at Disney and then left Disney for other opportunities, including the opportunity to work on a major Hollywood film, which gave me my big break and gave me the opportunity to go over to Australia, where I moved in late 1994. And uh, to this day, I have lived in Australia. I first started in Sydney, came over with a uh, film project and also a commercial project, Walt Disney Toys Project, and then ended up in Melbourne in 2000. I'll go back over some of that over time, but just wanted to let people know that uh, I didn't originate in Australia, but it is where I choose to reside and where I met my amazing wife, who, think baby Jesus, is not in the entertainment industry, is an absolute smoking supermodel, and great with spreadsheets, and hopelessly normal. She's extremely supportive of me, and I think I've covered all the bases now, and um, she can relax. But I originated in the U.S. I'm still very much the American boy in heart, but um, the Australian man in logic. And that is what forms a lot of what we will be talking about. But don't forget, I do have that sprinkling of English um, from the wife, so I am fond fond of the English and love to holiday there. In fact, I'm wearing my Qantas first class pajamas right now and sitting here with a, a beautiful cup of coffee, which is about as close to a first class flight that anybody will be getting for quite some time since um, our good friends in China sent us the Wuhan virus. But we'll touch on that later. Uh, in the meantime, things that are just kind of happening right now is this is the first week of forced self-isolation here in Australia. We're not supposed to go anywhere except for essential things. In Australia, it's very important to know that an essential business is a liquor store, a bottle shop. That's all you really need to know, and you know everything about Australia. Uh, in the U.S., my friends uh, and my son have been uh, dealing with this for some time. I've got a boy that lives in San Francisco. Some of you know I had an older boy that unexpectedly passed away this this last August, Chris, at 42 years of age, which absolutely slaughtered me. And uh, anyone that's lost a child 
would understand how that is because it's inexplicable otherwise. But I'm blessed to have another son, Steve, who lives in the Bay Area with um, his amazing partner, Jen. And I'm not allowed to spruik his business because he's scared it will crush his business if I mention it. So we'll just leave we'll just leave that there. I might just blurt it out in a future podcast. Might just blurt blurt it out because people that have attended my nine hour Bobbywood workshops, which I've been giving in Australia for many many years, and in Canada, in Europe, in uh, the U.S., that. Uh, are mostly people that are looking to get into the film industry, follow a path of how to be a successful writer, how to be a successful producer. It's a, a nine-hour absolute boot camp. Uh, people know that I will blurt things out there, absolutely amazing things. And I'm sure there's a lot of people just listening right now going, I wonder what he's going to say. Well, maybe not quite what I would say in those workshops because this is being recorded. And uh, I have, I'm very lawsuit-averse um, the entire production team here, which is me, is extremely lawsuit-averse. So we won't be slandering anybody or libeling anybody that um, that doesn't deserve it. But we'll get to a couple of those folks, most of them prominent actors. Anyway, mo- moving right along. Some things that I'd like to kind of cover in this first show to kind of give you an idea of all about. I want to talk about left-handed people, the huge discrimination against left-handed people. I want to talk about an amazing article that I read from um, the Boston Globe, a paper that I still love to read, about a 30-year lawsuit, a 30-year lawsuit between neighbors and how this uh, neighbor dispute, property dispute, has absolutely decimated families from suicide and um murder threats and divorce and death and and how just a little a little neighborly dispute can grow into things like that because i think that's really what the world is all about these days these little you know micro arguments that suddenly blow up and absolutely define us i mean really a couple of years ago who who would care if an actor or an actress or a director or you know a politician or anybody like that cared about this, that, or or the other. Everybody's always had causes. I remember one of the most bizarre things I remember seeing at the Academy Awards is when Marlon Brando wouldn't accept his Best Actor Award and sent um, a young American Indian girl whose name escapes me, something like, you know, Lucy Whitefeather or something like that, to... Um, accept his award and issue a protest. And then we had the Vanessa Redgrave thing um, barricading for the Palestinians, a lost cause since day one. Um, wrote her off my list way back then. That's, that's I think, when I first realized that I could absolutely love films and love actors and realize that a lot of these people absolutely are moronically messed up from a political standpoint. But I play the man and not the ball. And I don't mind. I actually don't mind. Some people go, oh, how can you ever go, I will never go see another movie from, you know, blank, because he's an absolute moron. I go, no, I may totally disagree with what that person says. I may absolutely hate what that person says. I might think, how how can they even walk upright and have an opinion like that? But I can love their work. And I and I think that's something, if, if I wanted to achieve it over the course of these podcasts, we will be calling out people that absolutely do drive us mental and um, a list of why they do. Very important. 
it's the fact that I really do want people to be in harmony, that I do think we can find common areas, whether it's, you know, this current health challenge that we're all having, this pan- pandemic panic that can can bring us together, but I'm afraid it's actually going to bring us further apart. It's a, it's a strange thing. If you're listening and you hate anchovies, well, I actually, I quite like anchovies in some things. I'm sure you're not going to go, well, fuck this. I'm not going to listen to him. He likes anchovies. What What logic is that? But yet, if I like a political figure and you don't like a political figure, that seems to be the dividing point now where you can write people off. In fact, since the 2016 election, uh, I would say that most people's friends list and families list have been decimated by the U.S. election, which we'll get into in a future podcast. But there's really no reason for that. The, the commonality of what we all like should exceed the division of what little things that we dislike. And I am both puzzled and amazed by that on a daily basis. One of the other things we'll be talking about, uh, speaking of both divisive and politics and social media and the left versus the right, is our good friend Woody Allen, who just today picked up a publishing deal. Woody Allen's biography, apropos of none, was originally coming out from Hashit Publications, which coincidentally published the Ronan Farrow book, Catch and Kill, which started ostensibly the Me Too movement with the uh, story of how Harvey Weinstein absolutely abused people over the course of, oh God, I don't know, 30 or 40 years or whatever. In fact, I would have to say, strangely enough, in October of 1985, I had a meeting with Harvey Weinstein. It was actually possibly the worst meeting of my life, and I'm not even an attractive woman, so there was no potential rape involved, but I've never had anybody tear strips off me like that guy did. So I'm happy to see him in prison. Anyway, unrelated to that, Hashit Press was publishing Woody Allen's book, and some of you may know, I know a lot of you just don't follow the trades and the Hollywood trades and things like that. Most of the staff of the publisher walked off in protest that they would publish this book. Now, that's the kind of canceling censorship ridiculousness of what's going on today that really has struck me to create this podcast. How someone might not have the right to tell their story because other people disagree. Oh, how can you publish a book by Woody Allen? He sexually abused his own daughter. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I wasn't there. Perhaps, perhaps not. But why not give him the right to defend himself and tell his story in his book, notwithstanding he's got one of the most amazing bodies of art and work in the film community, and there isn't anybody listening here that hasn't seen a Woody Allen film or many Woody Allen film and how he he changed the way films are made and the way that he did it um, over decades and decades and decades. Astonishing. Could he be a bad person? Perhaps. Should he be allowed to tell his story? Of course. Why should he be censored? Why should the tail wag the dog and, and staff of this publisher be able to walk, walk out and say, oh, no, you can't publish that. We work here. And it's that 
cri du chat that is just so absolutely insane. It's not just insane. The ridiculousness of employees telling their employer what they can or can't do creatively or as execution it just defies defies reality and you know imagine imagination imagination i can't wait to read the book it could be awesome it could be horrible i don't know but it's my right to read the book it's his right to publish the book that is really something that is a hot button with me it is the shouting down and the censoring of people by others that don't have the same beliefs these days if i don't like something you do i say oh shit i don't like that jim i don't like that nancy you know cut that crap out or i don't want to hear about it you do you go do what you want want to do but no one is going to tell me what i can or can't say what i do or don't believe and that should be the same with you too why can't people be able to express their opinion and of course some people can go oh fuck, i don't like that i don't like anything about that that's racist or that's evil or that's too liberal or that's too right wing or that's satanic or that's you know white supremacist or whatever let people have their opinions they're just opinions they're not going to kill you they're just thoughts they're not going to kill you so on that note it's probably good to let you know what i like so i can make you a list of things that i like and then you can sit back and go wow I like that. Bobby likes this. Bobby likes that. Bobby likes anchovies. I'll listen to his show. Well, it gets a little deeper than than anchovies. And excuse the sound of the notes here. Being my first podcast, I will probably make a plethora of mistakes, and we will get more and more polished and have more and more groovy sound effects and interviews and things as the weeks go on. So I will not deny that uh, this first effort, this first show, has left me just a little bit nervous, a few butterflies in the stomach, I don't mind getting up in front of 10,000 people or sitting in a room with eight people and spending nine hours going through their lives and their hopes and dreams. But I will admit a little bit of trepidation on this, uh, especially on the technical side. We never know what's going to work or not work here in the bunker. Um, things I like. You know I like movies. I absolutely fucking love the movies. I absolutely love going to the cinema, getting my large popcorn, my large Diet Coke, plunking myself down, putting a coat in my bag on either side of me. I hate people sitting next to me in the movies. I like to see movies by myself, which even my astonishingly wonderful wife understands. And uh, when the lights go down and the curtains open up, I absolutely get so excited. I get so excited, no matter how bad the film is, at least for the first few seconds, until I decide, oh, this is going to be good or bad. But it's that rush. It's that chasing the dragon of seeing a movie in the cinema and hoping this is going to be the most amazing thing. I love animals, especially cats, especially cats. This first podcast is dedicated to my two late Siamese cats, Oscar and Felix, who were two of the smartest people that I ever knew. I love beauty. I love fashion. I love cars. I love the beach. I love the water. Growing up in Iowa, we did have a river, and it was a fantastic river because there was always a couple of idiot kids that would drown every spring that would go down there. Um, ice would melt in the ponds. The river would be ice cold. There would be whirlpools and all kinds of things, and there would always be some kids that 
went just a little bit too early and drowned. And there would never be any kids from any families that we knew. They would never be from the north side of town, which was kind of the, oh, I submit the bit more salubrious part of town in Sioux City, which for a small town was very, very clicky. It was a very much of a patent place there. So I kind of developed a fascination with disasters, reading about, you know, tornadoes and twisters that would take people's houses off their their farms and blow them a million miles away, kids that would drown in the spring, uh, things like that. I had a fascination with disaster. In fact, it really translates to today. Just not not long ago, I was crossing the street in uh, Melbourne, and we have trams here. We still have the trams. It's kind of like San Francisco. They're... um, they're nostalgically wonderful, and they work quite well. But there was an old lady crossing the street, and she did not see the tram coming. And the tram's ringing the bell, and she didn't even, you know, seem like she could hear it. Maybe she was deaf. And there was that part of me that wanted to yell at her or save her, throw her out of the way. But there was really more of me that went for my iPhone to record her absolutely being annihilated by the tram, which regrettably didn't happen because I was more fascinated with that than I was with saving her. Notwithstanding, I'm a bit of a humanist, but um, it's that that dark side that just kind of keeps me going every morning. The inability to drive past a train wreck without stopping and just having to have just a little bit of a look, a little bit of a rubberneck or a sticky beak, as we say, down here. So things I don't like, the things that, you know, the things that I like, then what about the things I don't like? And by the way, the things I like, I love a happy ending, not the kind of happy ending that you might be thinking about, but a story with a happy ending. I do love that there are heroes in the world. And I do love that the best of humanity often comes out in the worst of times. But things that I don't like, I hate the theater. There's nothing to me more boring than the theater. I will never go to another Broadway show again. And in fact, I don't have to go to any Broadway shows again because they're all closed now because New York's totally closed. So I do feel bad for the employees and the uh, the lighting people, the gaffers, the electrical people, the actors, and everybody that's out of work, the playwrights, things like that. I feel bad for them. But I'm a two-dimensional kind of guy. I like the cinema. I don't like the theater. I don't like this three-dimensional, oh, you immerse yourself in it where it's uncomfortable, the seats are uncomfortable. It usually takes forever for a play to get to the interval. Um, you can't munch your popcorn. It's just a horrible confining experience for me. And on the top of all this of type of theater that I hate, it's things like Cirque de Soleil. If you ask me if I had a choice of being waterboarded, and having strobe lights, you know, flashed in my eyes for two hours, or see a Cirque du Soleil show, I think I'd probably go for the waterboarding, because at least I'd have a good story to tell, of which Cirque du Soleil has no story. I just I just cannot, for the life of me, see why people would, would go to that. I, I suffered through that once. But if you like it, I don't mind, because I don't mind what you like. Isn't that a wonderful mantra? I don't mind what you like. You can like whatever you want. You can hate whatever you want. I'll like whatever I want, and I'll dislike or hate whatever I want. And we don't have to kill each other over that, but we can discuss the merits of it. And that's, and that's a beautiful thing. I don't like duplicitous phonies. I don't like the Clintons. I think the Bill and Hillary Clinton or the Fred and Rosemary West 
of the of the political world. I think it's just un- unfathomable that people would like them. But if you like them, that's that's okay. That's okay. I don't like rude people. I don't like people that are rude to waiters and waitresses. If it ought to be absolutely, you know, a mandate that you have to work at a restaurant for six months of your life. Uh, it should be maybe a mandate that you go into the military for six months of your life, but I spent a year avoiding the military service. I was scared shitless, and thank God Nixon ended the Vietnam War six days before I was supposed to report to be shipped out to boot camp. So that's one reason that I loved Nixon, and um, two, that I was very glad he saved me from the military. Anyway, moving right along there, you should be forced to work in a restaurant for six months. I worked at one in University of Colorado. You will, you learn respect. You learn patience. You learn how to serve people um, and be subservient at times. You learn to be totally abused and, and yelled at. You learn to have people yell at you and abuse you and get a little bit of thick skin and take it. And in turn, when you go to restaurants, you look and you see what these waiters and waitresses and cooks and busboys and everything go through, and you appreciate it. There's nothing I hate more than when people abuse restaurant staff, especially when they're trying to impress their boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or something like that. If there's, it's just it's just untenable. Manners manners matter. Manners matter pretty much more than just about anything because if you have good manners you'll get through life quite well. What else do you need to know about me? I believe in the degree of climate change. To what degree, I'm not really sure yet, but I am quite confident the world isn't going to end because of climate change in the next 10 years. How dare you, Bobby, how dare you? I'm sure little Greta just unsubscribed. What else, what else, what else? Well, let's get down to food. I love meat. I love red meat. And I love animals. You said you liked animals before. How could you love meat? Well, I don't eat bat wings and dog soup. Thank you, Mr. Wuhan wet market. But I do love cows and sheep and lambs. And sometimes I like steak and veal and lamb chops. And when that happens, I do say a prayer for the little animals that have sacrificed their life for me so that I might have that lovely meal, and they have gone to restaurant heaven or cooking heaven. So that's how I handle that. If you're a vegan, that's fine. I have no problem with that. I might make jokes about you to your face or behind you. And I also might note that when all the grocery stores were absolutely decimated here a few weeks ago, as controls happened, that the only food left on the shelf were the vegan meals. So I rest my case. So as I said... I'm going to weigh heavily on the entertainment industry. So just kind of talking and musing about things that are going on right now. Everything seems to happen gradually, then suddenly. Gradually, then suddenly. We we heard about this virus a couple of months ago, whatever, from um, Wuhan and then on cruise ships and things like that. And then suddenly, world pandemic. People hear about a film in production, or they hear about an idea or a script, and it seems, oh, whatever happened, then suddenly it's at the Cinemaplex with a million screens around the world. Nothing just happens. You see somebody on uh, TV or in a movie, and they go, wow, 
what an overnight sensation. There is no overnight sensation. People don't realize the, the months and the years and, and sometimes even the decades that goes into making a career or making, making a project. And it's the suddenness, the Instagram, social media, Snapchat, TikTok, you know, inability, no patience for anybody to wait on anything where it just happens instantaneously. Instantaneously for my generation used to be the Polaroid land camera. You'd shoot a photo, and then you'd pull out this strip of film, or it would come out with a motor on the more expensive ones, and in about 60 seconds to two minutes, you'd have a photo. That was instant. That was just like instant gratification, nirvana. Now, everybody, and I will accentuate this to the millennials among us that are, that are listening, and there will be show notes for them too so they can get through this. You just want everything instantly. You want this pandemic to be over. You want prices to go down. You want zero interest rates. You want house loans cheap. It The life doesn't work that way. And the film industry doesn't work that way. And the, the world doesn't work that way. Remember, it's all gradually, then suddenly. It took it took months and years for my wife to... to get her the migrate from uh, a PC. She had this old Hewlett Packard that was basically a boat anchor and get her into a Mac and get her into an iPhone and even um, show her the benefits of high-speed broadband and all that. And now she's like a tech goddess. And it's as if in all the months and years that um, I pressed and pressed and pressed on that, oh, this is going to be great. We'll be able to communicate together. It'll be seamless and stuff like that. But what's happened is it's now it's now backfired on me because the other day in, in bed in the morning, we were um, waking up and turn on the TV and I go into the kitchen and I make a, a cup of tea, English breakfast tea with, with milk for her. She uh, doesn't drink coffee. She tried once. She did try. That ended badly. We'll talk about that another time. But we'll have a little bit of tea. I might have a coffee in, in bed. And um, look at emails, chat, watch the news, see what the family's up to. And I had a couple of photos and memes that I wanted to send to her, and I was airdropping to her. Now, if you don't know what airdropping is, it's a it's a, a seamless you know, wireless transmission where you're not even emailing or texting. It just drops from one computer to the other. If, if you don't know what airdrop is, I, I, I really can't spend this show explaining explain it to you. But the thing is, no one ever rejects your airdrop. When you send an airdrop, they have to take it. That's just kind of the way it is. But for the first time ever, she rejected my airdrop. She chose to hit the reject button. Who rejects an airdrop? It's so weird because an airdrop is like a digital gift. I, I have this. I'm giving it to you. And, you know, you can delete it later on or whatever. But to have that disc rejected was unbelievable. Now, she is left-handed. And um, this could have something to do with it. And I, I have to thank Linda Rodriguez McRobbie, uh, a Boston writer, who wrote an amazing article about it's a right-handed world. What if we looked at it from the left and I've been doing a bit of research about left-handed people. I don't know how many of you out there are left-handed uh, or even know about an amazing shop in Soho that started in 1968 called Everything Left-Handed. It was started by a fellow named William Gruby, who was just tired of you know trying to find things for left-handers that just didn't exist. You know, corkscrews, potato peelers, can openers, you know, 
even a left-handed shotgun, so discharge shells would go to the right so they wouldn't hit the user in the face. And um, over the years, there's been so much research about left-handed people. And of course, because I live with one, and strangely enough, three of the last four business partners uh, that I've had on film projects have been left-handed too. So it's a little bit of a strange conundrum. And there's so much bias for le- left-handers. It, uh, the words, in fact, left even comes from Middle English for weak, um, on the observation that in most people, a left hand was weaker. And in classical Latin, the word for left pulled double duty. Sinister meant either the left side or wrong or harmful. And in, in French, gauche is either the direction or, or clumsy. The devil himself is left-handed, or at least according to medieval tradition. So I'm a bit fascinated about that. And um, about 10 to 15% of the population is left-handed, but yet there's a dichotomy that um, almost a third of them seem to be below normal learning level, but the but conversely, a third are extremely high learning aptitude, um, which in such a small percentage of the population seems to have such a huge, huge shift. A lot of people think it's because of the way things were designed or the pressure put on left-handed people as they're growing up or whatever. But what amazes me, and the, and the purpose of this, is how digital design, things like um, things that play a central role in our life, like the, the fairly symmetrical design of smartphones, is evidence that we can design beyond handedness, uh, something that Linda McRobbie dis- discusses in the article. And the reason I bring this up is having ham-handedly segueing from being rejected on an airdropped is that we can design for small minorities, 10 to 15%, or even medium minorities to embrace the the wholeness of, of the population of technology. And I, and I believe this is the way that we can also treat other minorities or bring all people into a common goal, whether it's making a film project or being part of the same populace or um, ostensibly so that people feel equal without special agendas, without playing identity politics, without um, forming quotas and um, the, the dark side that has come out of Me Too and Black Lives Matters and, and every other you know, special interest group that came out with a, a good idea or a, a good agenda and ended up perhaps causing more harm than good, perhaps to be discussed. Um, because as I said, my ultimate goal of this podcast is to bring people together to think and to think of ways that we can do things better so that they don't divide us, even though, as I said, I do fear more divisions may come to be discussed. And this left-handed theme will come into a couple of other podcasts too, but I realize now that I'm also going more over the time than I expected. You're actually getting a lot more than you haven't paid for, and especially because we don't have any sponsors as yet, but we'll be working on that. But uh, just a couple of thanks for everybody that has sent in material. The amazing artwork for the podcast is courtesy of Alistair Hardiman. And the amazing bump-in song is the theme song from the upcoming TV series Fulfillment, which was composed by notable composer and arranger, the English superstar Glenn West. And some of the things we'll be talking about in the next couple episodes will be um, the amazing 30-year property dispute that has ended in tears and death, um, Jews in the news, when the Wuhan virus is going to subside, um, a dinner party exercise. Those of you that have been at my Bobbywood seminars would know that this is possibly one of the most powerful 
little exercises that you can use to propel your career, everything that's in the news, politics, why every time you see an Uber bike or one of those free ride bikes in the uh, the river, you realize why we can't have nice things. And a wondrous little anecdote from a lady that I met who was working at a car wash in St. Kilda that really reaffirmed my belief in humanity. And most importantly, how this new cashless society, how every little cafe now has dropped the use of uh, cash for paying for things during the uh, um, pandemic is really subtly dangerous and diabolical in how it's going to pan out after this all finishes and how it will affect us. So in the meantime, if you haven't subscribed, you better subscribe because I'm going to have a list of people that listen and don't subscribe and I'll be naming them and shaming them on air someday when I figure out that technology. I thank you for your time. I thank you for your love. I kind of feel with this episode like it's the first couple of episodes of Breaking Bad when you kind of go back and go, gee, that was a little nondescript what's happening here, but um, I've got to get to know you and you've got to get to know me before we can go deeper, as the therapist said for 30 years. And remember, it's nice to be important, but it's really more important to be nice. Taking you out with the Catherine Wheel Crank. See you next Friday.